Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, and the podcast is in partnership with PR Daily, which is the preeminent brand for public relations professionals delivering news, advice, opinions, and benchmarking via prdaily.com. Join me there to find more episodes for the podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do leave a review and share it with your colleagues so that more folks can find it online. Thanks so much. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's guest uh, really caught my eye with a piece that he wrote not that long ago about accepting all of the pitches that he got all in one day. And he uh, wrote about it in this great piece. So Dan Coyce is with uh, with Slate. He is a writer, an editor, and a podcaster for them um, with lots of nominations and lots of other cool kudos. But Dan, thanks so much for being with me today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So I want to hear the other side. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about um, about your piece, right? Because I mean, I've read it. I know a dozen of my friends in PR. We've all shared it. Really loved it. Um, the one thing I've learned since I started the podcast, Dan, from like the colleagues and the friends that I've talked to, I even after having done PR for twenty some years, I didn't realize how much the incoming was for you guys. I really didn't. And it's nonstop spam because so much of it is not relevant. So talk yeah, to me a little that, bit about that was the inspiration for the piece was this, you know, the the way my inbox would fill every day with pitches. And you know, not only, you know, it's like at I would leave my computer for 20 minutes at 9:55 a.m. and then come back at 1015 and I would have gotten 25 emails because everyone schedules their emails for somewhere around 10 o'clock. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was hard. It was frustrating because that's like sort of annoying. It was also frustrating because it, it buried messages from my colleagues mm-hmm. or pitches from writers, but it was also annoying because it buried the press releases or the publicists that I actually wanted to hear from the ones right. who had a thing that was specific to me. That was an opportunity that I wanted to take advantage of. Sure. And I often would just completely miss those in the pile of random pitches from people about yeah. their, the life coaches or air purifiers that they were representing. <laughs> and how could you not? I mean, it's, it's impossible. Plus, I mean, if you add in uh, the emails you get from um, at least myself, I get from school or I get from a variety of things that are happening in the neighborhood or whatever it else is happening. This, the volume is just, it's not manageable. So the talk- school emails come to my home account, which luckily most publicists don't have, but those also <laughs> come at a publicist-like pace. They sure do. Uh, as I'm sure yours do as well. So uh-huh. I've just also ended up not reading any of those. Yeah. So <laughs> blissfully unaware and hoping the kids are paying attention. Right. Um, all right. So talk to me a little bit about the piece uh, itself. Um, and because so many of the folks that I know have read it, but you really got a chance to dive into um, really some things that are irrelevant to what you write on a regular day, right? I mean, you had pitches that were somewhat tangential to what you do, but talk to me. Entirely tangential. Yeah. <laughs> so the goal of the piece was basically to figure out who was, 
who, why these pitches were ending up in my inbox. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that for what I would just pick a day at random. Um, and that day I would reply yes to every single pitch that was offering me a person. You oh, know, I see. not someone who wanted to send me a free mattress or something. Mm -hmm. And not like someone who wanted me to read a book. I get book, you know, book publicists emails a lot because I write about books. I didn't need to read all those books, but what I was mostly curious about were who were the individuals who were saying, I want to talk to a reporter and I'm willing to pay a publicist to allow me to talk to a reporter, any reporter, it doesn't matter who. Um, so I wrote back to all those offers, the ones that were like, I'm happy to set up a time with you and my client to talk about uh, you know, cheating in baseball or to talk about uh, whatever, anything uh, that was almost totally irrelevant to what I actually write about. Right. Um, so as soon as one of those emails would land on my inbox, this was Wednesday, October 26th, uh, I would just instantly write back as quickly as I could. Yes, I would love to talk to such and such. Can we set up 15 minutes sometime soon? I'm available today. Wow. And it was, it, it was like Christmas had come. Uh, <laughs> You're right. I, it seemed like for these publicists and also uh, like for my inbox, because you know, my immediate, my inbox immediately became a hell of scheduling emails <laughs> and trying to find times and, uh, and, you know, and people writing me back absolutely instantly. And I, you know, I started sending these emails out at like 10 something in the morning by one thirty, I was already talking to someone and, uh, and, you know, and people writing me back absolutely instantly. And I, you know, I started sending these emails out at like 10 something in the morning by one thirty, I was already talking to someone, um, you know, uh, to a, um, uh, a woman at a, who was the first one I talked to? Sorry, you'll have to edit this part out. I'll no, that's okay. Um, there was, let me, let me do this too. I want to make sure that folks know how to find this piece because it's great. It's, I said yes to every PR email for an entire day. If only I knew what I'd done and it aired on, or it posted on November 11th. Um, so for folks that are looking for that, make sure that you, um, I'll link to it too, Dan, when we air the, the episode itself so folks can get a read. Cause it's a fun read. I thought you did a really nice job. And I think the one thing that came through, I think you kind of went into it, went into it with the right attitude. Like this is going to just be a fun thing. Let's see how this goes. At least that's how it came across right. in the pitch. Well, as you, I as assumed you I would talk to a real mix of people. It's like that first person I talked to, you know, by two hours after I started sending these emails was like the CMO for some kind of startup that does like social media parental controls. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, she was interesting. She was passionate about her job and she was very well media trained and had a lot to say. Um, but, you know, I also assumed I would talk to people whose products wouldn't interest me that much, but I could maybe find something to talk to them about that was interesting to both of us. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that I would talk to a bunch of people who who aren't in my wheelhouse, but who I would actually find interesting in the way that people are just generally interesting. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask everyone, you know, about the thing it was that they were pushing. I wanted to make sure that people didn't feel entirely cheated when they appeared in this piece, that they got a sense that they got something out of it. But I also tried in each conversation to steer everyone a little bit towards what does visibility mean to you? Why was it? Why do you feel like you need or want to talk to reporters? What does that do for your book or your company or your product or your profile? Mm -hmm. um, and why did you hire a publicist to do it? And so the piece ended up being both a, a you know a sort of spotlight on each of these seventeen people who, who happened to land in my inbox that day. And yeah. also a sort of greater meditation on 
what publicity is and what it's for and the job, the goods, the good and bad jobs that publicists do uh, trying to service their clients, sometimes not very hard. Yeah. Well, and this, this has always been, this is the one thing I come back to. So when I started the podcast like a year and a half ago, the question I started asking was what pitches are working? And consistently every single conversation was about how publicists were not doing their homework or they were taking an aggregate list of a hundred journalists, not spending time curating that list to find out what people cared about and then sending out the pitch in the hope that some spaghetti would stick to the wall for lack of a better way to put it. I I unfortunately did not know this term when I wrote the piece, but all the publicists who have tweeted about the piece keep referring to the spray and pray, a truly horrendous expression that I now love. (laughs) But, but yes, that was certainly the impression I'd gotten from many of these, that you had a list, maybe you bought a couple of lists from mm-hmm. someplace, and you had a client with something that you were sort of lukewarm about, and you don't know what to do with it, and you just want some results to show to them, mm-hmm. so you send it out. And so when a journalist from Slate writes back to you, um, all, all that happens then is that you're, you email your client, and you're like, great news, we got a hit from Slate. That's it. And for the most part, that was true. Now, there were a couple of publicists um, who wrote back with what I sort of viewed, you know, in my in my immense wisdom about publicity. I, you know, I've never done this as a living, so I don't really know what goes into it. But who wrote back and said what seemed to me to be the right thing, which was, oh, tell me about the piece you're working on and how my client fits into it. Ah. And so when someone wrote me that, I would always, I would tell the truth. I would write back and say, yeah, I'm replying yes to every single pitch I get today to see if I talk to interesting people. And um, most, though not all, of the publicists I wrote that back to, I never heard from again. A few said, great, okay, here's your time with my client in such and such a time. I have no idea if they ever told their client that that's what the piece was or not. Um, But that was a real minority of the people I wrote to. I think I ended up writing back to 23 or 24 people, five maybe, uh, asked that question five mm-hmm. or six. Um, I ended up talking to 17 different people. Um, and, and you know, over the course of the next week or two, and most of them, you know, had no idea what the piece was going to be, but almost all of whom I had pretty fun conversations with. Yeah. And it, it comes out, it reflects well on the people that did talk to you, I think, um, just by the way I read it. So that was a super fun piece. Tell me a little, because I want to get into some of, you've written some really super fun pieces. Now that I've had a chance, this caught my eye because it's obviously in my workspace. Um, but now I've gone back and checked into some of the other fun things you've done. What, what for Slate, talk to me a little bit about what, what pitches do catch your eye? What is it you're looking for when you're writing? Um, I write pretty much based on my interests and passions. I have a pretty unique role at Slate. I think unique for many journalists, which is that I've been there a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I, my interests dovetail nicely with the magazine's interests and our readers' interests. Mm-hmm. And so I can generally pursue my weird passions um, and find that they result in something pretty good and that readers tend to spark to them. So like, you know, this spring when I, um, just got interested in, you know, thank, thanks to a conversation and a, and a um, idea that came from another editor at Slate, I got super interested in the company OXO, the kitchen mm-hmm. gadget company yeah. OXO. Um, and, you know, I think I had received a, the occasional pitch from them, although I don't think they employ outside publicists a huge amount. They have a pretty large in-house team. 
Um, but I got interested just in why is it that they, how it was that they sort of became just better at making kitchen gadgets than anyone else. Right. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, you know, interacting with their publicity team and visiting their headquarters in Manhattan, writing a piece about them. But, you know, like most of the stuff I write that didn't come from a publicist pitch, publicists were incredibly helpful to me mm -hmm. and their whole PR team was very helpful to me in making that piece. Uh, and arranging the access I needed and stuff like that, but it didn't come from a pitch. It's possible that if OXO had, you know, knowing that I write about often about quirky home stuff and food stuff, had pitched me basically saying, you know, we think we're really good and we have a unique story. Do you think you would want to tell it? Maybe I would have responded favorably. I, I also think it's just as likely I would have been like, oh no, that's Ooh, I, I don't want to be shilling for you. I'm not into that today. <laughs> right. But of course, when we organically came up with the idea, I was happy to basically show. I mean, the piece is a big, sloppy, wet kiss for us. <laughs> um, and so that's why I think it's very hard for publicists and PR people to pitch to journalists um, outside of the realm of just like the product that they already are writing about. If you're a movie critic, great. Pitching movies to them is fine. Yeah. If you write up, if you work for the wire cutter, you know, pitching gadgets to them is obviously going to work, but almost everything else just is very, very difficult. And so in some respects, I empathize with publicists who feel at a loss when sort of faced by, you know, a world of magazines and journalists I can't even imagine how much time it would take you to like do a deep dive into every single fucking journalist on the face of the earth <laughs> to try and figure out what their interests and specialties are. Yeah. Um, and then even if you did that, you, they would still not even reply to you, you know, 99 out of a hundred times because their email inboxes are flooded and because yeah. any journalists just have like a natural distrust of publicists because they feel they're being sold to. Yeah, that, and that's a, like a really hard barrier to, to entry. Yeah, no and doubt. it makes your job seem really difficult. Well, it is difficult, but it actually is kind of, for me anyway, I've been in the public affairs space, so it's probably more, it's less about products and more about people and about issues. So and, a little bit and different. Messaging, yeah. And some messaging, but like, but you have to be careful because messaging can also sound like BS, right? I mean, it can definitely mm -hmm. sound like a lot of, you know, spin or nonsense that people are really not interested. They're really sort of interested in cutting through to the to the facts. But it looks to me like you're having a lot of fun, um, like just based on what you're covering. I mean, you are covering some, you're covering songwriting, you're covering um, movies, you're covering, you know, people and, and behaviors. But you actually embarked on like a, you, you picked up and left the DC suburbs and you traveled for an entire year with your family. And, and wrote about it. Tell me a little bit about that project. Uh, yeah, I, um, I wrote a book called How to Be a Family, um, which was published in 2019, which was all about a trip that our family oh, took. Oh, it was prior to COVID. Of, I thought it was uh, like during COVID. No, 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 no thank God. If, yeah. if we had tried to do this during COVID, it would have fallen apart and we would have lost all our money. So oh, no. thank God this happened just before COVID. Yeah. Yeah, it was 2017 was the year that we spent um, traveling around the world and it was inspired by feeling very frustrated with uh, our parenting and family life here in the Burbs. It was, it was extremely fast paced. We were very overworked. Our kids were very overscheduled. Um, they were stuck to their screens and we were stuck to our screens. And all we did was yell at each other about how we were stuck to our screens. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, we all felt very overwhelmed. And it, it really seemed to me that 
families in other countries just seemed to be doing it better than yes. we were. Like everything I read and had seen and my travels suggested that that in lots of different places, family life didn't resemble American family life at all. And there had to be certain structures or policies or cultural um, decisions that explain some of those things. So the goal of the book was to travel to four different places that were as different as possible from suburban Washington, D.C., live there for three months and do our best to understand, to live as the people there do on a family level and to understand what it is that helps people live that way. So we went to New Zealand and really explored how the, you know, the New Zealand connection with outdoors and sort of rugged New Zealand independence manifests itself in a parent child relationship. And we went to the Netherlands for three months and explored what living on bikes um, in a, in a country that's totally devoted to compromise and long discussions about every decision did to our family. Um, And uh, it ended up being a pretty remarkable trip, not least for the various ways in which I fucked it up. um, (laughs) And the ways that we're all doing that. (laughs) I have two teenagers that live here. I'm doing the best I can all day long. Yeah. You don't have to travel around the world to get your children angry at you. Nope. It's that's just the most expensive way. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to read, wait to read it. I I definitely think that it's something that that's fun and, and reflective. I may have to have my husband read it too. Dan, how long have you been at Slate? Uh, I'm in my 11th year at the magazine, Mm -hmm. um, which is quite a long time to be at a web magazine. I think that's somewhat unusual. Yeah. Um, Where were you before? I I worked at New York Magazine. I was one of the founders of Vulture, their culture blog, when that first launched a long time ago. Um, And that was my first real journalism job. I had freelanced a lot before then and also worked in book publishing, which I was um, quite bad at. I was a I was sort of a literary agent, but mostly I was a failure. Um, and I talked I, to Maris Kreisman for the pod. Oh, yeah. Maris is great. Yeah. Um, which everyone who's ever had anything to do with book publishing knows and loves Maris. <laughs> um, and uh, and I worked in, I worked for a movie producer for a while. I just like, you know, and I'll pretty much through all of that, I was mostly feeling like, oh, I would like, I should be writing. Yeah. I, I had an MFA in fiction. Um, I, uh, you know, had dreams of writing for magazines and newspapers, but all I was sort of doing was putting other people's stuff into the world right. for the most part. And so finally, uh, I just started pitching and I had the, you know, I think I had some pretty good ideas and I had connections, which really helped. But even so in my first year as a quote unquote freelance journalist, I made like $700, uh, but luckily I was um, married to someone who had a job. So, um, <laughs> we have to have balance, right? <laughs> yeah. If one of us um, is doing that, the other one has to be a steadier income. Yes. Yes. So she, <laughs> uh, she, was, I mean, it's because of that privilege that I was able to have any career at all because she was willing to put up with a couple of bad years uh, in which I never did anything and spent a lot of time at home playing video games and complaining <laughs> and then pitching fruitlessly um uh and and then eventually people started saying yes and i started writing stuff and uh and then through a stroke of enormous lockout hired at vulture which was really sort of a launching pad for the kind of writing i wanted to do that's cool which which at that time particularly was fast and funny Mm -hmm. um because that was the metabolism i was able to maintain at that point in my life that was before i had kids obviously yeah that has a way of sort of humbling you um, yeah, well, and also just making it so that you no longer have any energy for that kind of speedy <laughs> blogging. Yeah, right. 
So when you're not writing um, in your spare time, what kinds of fun things are you reading, watching, doing? Is there anything that you've that you can pass along that you think is fun to watch or do these days? Uh, I've got a big pitch for a book that I'm on the home stretch of right now oh. uh, that came out this year uh, by uh, Hernan Diaz. It's a novel. It's called Trust. Um, he, I have not read his previous work. He got nominated for the Pulitzer for his last novel. Um, but this is a truly majestic and fun, uh, novel about a robber baron financier in the 1920s and his wife. Um, and we meet them through four different texts. The novel is sort of a, a metafiction, sort of like Umberto Eco. Um, if you were mm-hmm. a fan of like the, you know, the name of the rose or Foucault's pendulum or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the novel is made up of four different texts, each of which Hernan Diaz wrote. And the first one is a novel that a contemporary wrote in which a thinly veiled version of this financier's life is told. And then the second version is the actual financier's memoirs. Mm. And then the third is a, a, a story, a, an essay written after the fact by the woman who the financier hired to help him write the memoirs because he was so angry about the novel and the picture of him that it had painted. And then the fourth is the journal of the novelist's wife, which is only discovered toward the end of the story. And so between these four versions of the story, you, the reader, each one of them is very satisfying and fun to read on its own and is like pitch perfect. It really sounds like a novel written in 1939. It really sounds like the journal of a woman dying of cancer, but still very intelligent and independent. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as you put the clues in each one together, it becomes like a fun puzzle where you are only by the end of the story uncovering something close to the actual truth of what happened to these people. And what's your relationship with the with the publication? It's coming out here shortly. Uh, no, it's out in the oh, United States. Uh, okay. Yeah, it came out this summer. Um, I found it because of a great review in the New York Review of Books. I mean, I, you know, I think that I think publicists had pitched the book to me um, for whatever reason. I awesome. noticed those pitches, maybe because they were buried in a lot of other pitches, <laughs> or just because it, for whatever reason I thought, oh, I don't care about a book about a robber baron. But uh, the, a great review in the New York Review of Books made me think, oh, I would love this novel. I love a literary puzzle. Um, nice. And so uh, I read it and really enjoyed it. Done, yeah, it's out now. People should Awesome. No, I'm going to put it on the list and I'm going to put it in the in the show notes for the, for the podcast. All right. So, Dan, before I let you go today, um, I always ask for a recommendation for a future episode. Who would you recommend for me to talk to some other time? Um, uh, one of my favorite recommendations. Uh, writers and podcasters at Slate uh, is a woman named Rachel Hampton, who is um, uh, much younger than me and much hipper than me, um, but who does, who who for many years was writing very interesting stuff for us. Uh, And then about a year and a half ago, she launched a podcast at Slate called I See Why Am I, which stands for In Case You Missed It. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is basically a guide to the weirdnesses of the internet uh, for people who simply do not have time to keep up with all the crazy things that people are arguing about on the internet. (laughs) So if you have ever been like, I mean, maybe you seem younger than me. And so my hunch is that you are not as bewildered by things as I am. But for a person (laughs) like me who does not know what a visco girl is or who does not um, have any sense of why people are talking about this reality star or, um, uh, or this uh, Twitter kerfuffle or whatever, 
Um, it is an incredibly voicey, funny, and fun guide to that world. And I think of it as a kind of uh, like guerrilla um, journalism, like a guerrilla explainer. Like it is explaining things that many people would think do not need to be explained. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet it is finding in each of them through stealth and surprise uh, huge ramifications and social importance that I would never have described to these things if the podcast did not explain them to me. So I think Rachel is cool and funny and great. Awesome. Um, and I don't understand half the things she talks about, but I think she <laughs> maybe she could help me be relevant with my kids. <laughs> that might help alone. All I, right. I, I will not admit on this show how often <laughs> I've just took taken something she said and directly said it to my children. Well, luckily, our kids are not listening to podcasts. We're on anyway. So, Dan, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. Keep up the great work. Keep having fun. You can tell from out here reading your stuff that you're having a great time at what you're doing. I appreciate you so much. Thanks. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.